Have you ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Or maybe what they use to keep their skin looking so flawless? Well, even if I don't know these answers, I can tell you something equally as interesting and unicorn related. Over 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support so you can grow beyond your wildest dreams, boosting leads and ramping sales along the way. They even have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. Plus, with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save up to 90% off your first year. I'll admit it does sound a little too good to be true. But unlike that majestic and also incredibly fictitious unicorn, HubSpot for startups is all real. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot and take your growth to new heights, visit HubSpot.com startups. Good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, December 19th. I'm John Weigel here with Rob Litterst, and this is The Hustle Daily Show. Today's bite of a story is about Google's recipe ranking system, or lack thereof. Have you ever noticed that when you search for a recipe on Google that all of them have ratings? Well, those are actually not assigned by Google at all. We'll explore how individual food bloggers may be hacking the system to get their dishes to the top, and so much more. But before we do all that, let's chat about the biggest headlines today across business and tech. First up, Adobe and Figma called off their merger. The agreement, which would have seen Adobe acquire Figma for $20 billion, was cited by regulators and designers as a near monopoly. Adobe is now required to pay Figma a reverse termination fee of $1 billion. So cutting a little off the edges of that one to get them out unscathed on there. So I was tracking this pretty closely back when it originally happened. And I mean, for those that don't really know too much about this space... Adobe is the biggest player in design software. I don't think you could really call it a monopoly because there are other players, but they've been kind of like the leader in design software for a very long time. Figma came around within the last decade. And the big unlock for Figma is they structured their entire suite around collaboration. So it's all kind of like a web-based tool. So think about it as going from like Microsoft Word to Google Docs, right? So it makes it super, super easy for designers to collaborate together, comment on each other's designs, iterate, and make things faster. Totally. So Figma has become incredibly popular. I mean, as you can see by the $20 billion acquisition price, which I think a lot of people at the time thought was way too much, but a lot of people advocated for it because they felt like with Figma, Adobe all of a sudden just had this unencumbered future where nobody was going to disrupt them because Figma was, I think, to many people, the company that would be able to disrupt Adobe down the road. This really felt like a match made in heaven. Technically, I think Adobe has struggled to make collaboration work with its products because they weren't natively built that way. And bringing Figma into the picture, I think, was going to give them a massive advantage to actually make that happen. What's interesting is between the time that this acquisition initially started and now, OpenAI has gone absolutely crazy and Adobe has really adopted it. And I think the narrative around Adobe has changed quite a bit from this kind of incumbent that might have been vulnerable to an upstart like Figma disrupting it to a company that really has its eye on the ball with AI and is in a really, really good place and well positioned for the future of design software. Adobe stock is up about 2.5% today, so clearly this news didn't rattle people about their future. I understand why this was shot down, because Adobe, as it is, already has such a big footprint in the design space. I mean, Photoshop, Illustrator, 
all of that is done through Adobe. And they have been, as you said, Rob, looking to make their platforms a little more collaborative. And this would have really put them over the moon. Like as an Adobe user uh, for some platforms, I honestly would have loved this to be able to collab with people like on a Google Doc. But yeah. The fact that it's not happening means that there's some chances for other companies to come out of the woodwork and challenge Adobe like Figma. But given that this merger fell through, it's going to be interesting to see what Figma is like going forward if they still have that kind of drive to compete or what they end up doing. These are the sorts of things that I think people need to think about. Has Figma taken the pedal off the gas as far as their product roadmap goes? Or have they slowed down the velocity of their product iteration because of this pending acquisition? I wonder what kind of under-the-radar impact this acquisition has had on both companies over the last few years. But yeah, definitely a crazy turn of events. Yeah, definitely. And moving from design companies onto electric vehicle companies... Neo, the Chinese EV maker and Tesla rival, just got $2.2 billion invested in them from CYVN Holdings, an investment firm backed by the Abu Dhabi government. So people across the board seem to be investing in electric vehicles lately, and this is just a big part of that. So we'll see what happens with that going into 2024 and if Tesla will have a big competitor on the market in the form of Neo. In more transportation news, Southwest Airlines is still paying for its 2022 holiday mishap that left millions of travelers stranded. The U.S. Transportation Department is ordering the airline to pay a $140 million civil penalty on top of the $600 million it already paid to reimburse travelers. As somebody that always has it out for airlines, good. (laughs) But (laughs) keeping things general across the board here, though, 2022 was a big travel year. I'm glad it was not forgotten what Southwest Airlines did in the latter half of the year to flyers. So it's going to be interesting seeing them getting their comeuppance a little more and how other airlines maybe try to avoid doing things like this in the future. In an Apple update, Apple is going to halt U.S. sales of some Apple watches this week as it works through a patent dispute with medical tech giant Massimo. And this all stems from Joe Chiani, the head of Massimo, learned in 2019 that Apple might be infringing on the tech he'd spent decades of his life perfecting, a technology called pulse oximeter that can read oxygen levels in the blood through light. So Apple may be pulling some Apple watches off the market because of this. We'll keep you tuned in on that. Next up, more Americans than ever, 58% of households owned stock last year. That's up from 53% in 2019, which suggests that the pandemic-fueled personal investing trend is here to stay. Rob, what do you think about this supreme growth in investors over the past few years? A lot of the commentary around this came from the pandemic stimulus, like people having additional money. Apps like Robinhood, which make it a lot easier to trade than conventional stock brokerage platforms. Absolutely. And people learning about it over YouTube and the pandemic. I mean, it all makes sense. And I feel like for a lot of people in my age group in their late 20s, they are really looking towards investing as some way to build wealth long term. So I think it's really exciting, actually. It's awesome that people are taking their money into their own hands these days. It's awesome. And lastly, VF Corp, which owns the Vans and North Face brands, says hackers have limited its ability to fulfill some holiday orders, which is denting the company's stock, but is giving anyone showing up empty-handed on Christmas a perfect excuse to fall back on this year. On to our main story of the day. Our big story concerns Google's, quote, Top recipes on their search engine. Bloggers and companies alike seem to be taking some interesting methods to make sure that they're highlighted in the Google search carousel. 
But are those ratings inflated at all? What's the story here, Rob? What's this all about? Yeah. So I think to start, Google has kind of ruined online recipes in general from the get-go. Like, I don't know if you cook much, John, but my wife and I cook quite a bit. And the first thing that you notice anytime you go to any online recipe is that there's just a massive amount of crap before you actually get to the recipe. And it's all for search engine optimization. Anytime you're scrolling through this massive, stupid story about the recipe that I'm sure the person who wrote it is only elaborating on so that they can rank better. That's all just for Google and search engine optimization. So I think to start off, thank you, Google, for that. (laughs) But I think what's interesting about this, and it comes at an interesting time, is as you know, it's the holidays. A lot of people are looking for new baking recipes. And the question is, can you trust Google's recipe rankings? And this was actually posed by Caitlin Dewey of the newsletter. Links, I would G-chat you if we were friends, which just phenomenal name for a newsletter to begin with. Great name. But what's going on here is interesting. So in June of 2013, Google updated its rich snippets, which is Google's search results with additional info like brief descriptions, prices, events, locations, to allow recipes to be included in these ratings. So in practice, what this means is when you Google a recipe now, top results appear in a carousel that you get kind of an image of each recipe that you can scroll through. And each image has a star rating. The issue here, though, is that the ratings are essentially meaningless. The sites supply their own ratings and there's no objective metric for what's good or bad. The thing that's kind of crazy here is a lot of smaller blog sites are frequently rated really, really high. And ranking higher than like media sites like the New York Times cooking, which I think is kind of suggesting that maybe these bloggers are kind of juicing the rankings by deleting their bad reviews. Yeah. And that's an interesting part of it too, because I believe the average ranking of New York Times recipes was 4.5. The average Bon Appetit recipe was a 4.2. And these small blogs seem to be significantly higher. And granted, that could be because that there are just less ratings coming in. That's for sure. But When you're Googling these recipes, you're not exactly seeing like, oh, uh, Korean fried chicken, 4.2 on Bon Appetit or Korean fried chicken, five stars on some small blog you've never heard of. Right. So you're clicking on that blog. But obviously, you know, I love this for small bloggers because it really gives them a way to fight and punch up against these bigger companies that are peddling these recipes. But at the same time, there's a lot of information here that leads us to believe that these smaller bloggers or smaller food sites are, as you said, deleting bad reviews or in some cases, not allowing bad reviews on their site without a proper login and a long enough comment. So there are a lot of restrictions that people are kind of bouncing around, hovering over, hurtling over that let them have these higher ratings that get them to the top of your Google list that make you pick their recipes, even if they may not be that good. Yeah, those are great points. I also think that the kind of media companies and publishers are at a disadvantage here because I think in general, people are way more willing to be critical of an institution than an individual. For sure. You're way more likely to comment on a New York cooking recipe and be like, these were pancakes or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. Then you are to you know put that on an individual person's recipe review yes. site where you know that like that person is probably not getting a salary. They are probably making money based on you know how many people are visiting their recipes. There's a huge article in the New York Times recently about the woman behind Half Baked Harvest, which is just an absolute empire at this point. Yeah. So a lot of these folks are making a lot of money with their recipes, but it is an absolute grind. And I do agree with you because I do think in general it's great for people to be able to compete with these bigger institutions. But at the end of the day, it also does kind of feel like 
with ratings on any platform, I feel like you kind of need to know like the context of what you're searching for. Yeah. Even if you're looking for a restaurant on Google and you're looking for the highest ratings, unless there are a ton of ratings and it's like really, really convincing and you cross check it, it could just be that the restaurant is really good at getting people to give them five-star reviews, right? It might not actually mean anything about the food. Oh yeah. Do you know how many restaurants or bars I've been to that I finished eating or like finished a drink and the bartender or whoever comes up to me and they're like, hey man, uh, with your next drink, can you give us five stars? If you give us five stars, I'll give you a free shot yeah, or something. Dude, so, totally. you know, across the board, yeah. across the board, this is happening everywhere. But it's really interesting because this is just the latest in these trials and tribulations of cooking and recipes on Google. So the article that was written in The Hustle today about this, which was written by Juliet and is really great. She talks about how Caitlin Dewey, um, the author of this piece, also spoke with this guy, Meathead Goldwyn of AmazingRibs.com, who started struggling and slipping in Google's rankings because he failed to install new recipe code in 2010. His quote here, and this is great, he says, if you're trying to make a living on the internet, you have to worship Google. So he said that back in 2010, and I think that applies to a wide range of internet publishers and creators well beyond just cooking. But I think it's just a solid indication of like, this is just the newest iteration of that. But it's an issue that's been pretty pervasive for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen it in a lot of other places like, you know, YouTube content or whatnot, but pleasing the algorithm is just something that we never thought before, I guess, today that food was meant to do. So when you're looking at your holiday recipes, when you're picking out what to make this year, maybe just do a bit more research in that category and check out some other recipes and do a little reading, but don't read about, you know, the person's three kids and their dog. You don't have to do that. (laughs) Exactly. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, get yourself signed up at thehustle.co slash email. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Hey, everybody, let me tell you about this great podcast that's available right now. Creator Science, hosted by Jay Klaus, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, which is the audio destination for business professionals. Creator Science goes behind the scenes with today's top creators. Through narrative interviews, Jay Klaus explores how creators like Tim Urban, James Clear, Tori Dunlap, and Cody Sanchez are building their audiences today. And by learning how these creators make a living with their art and creativity, Creator Science can help you gain tools and confidence to do exactly the same. I was actually listening to an episode recently where Jay had on Dr. K, who is a Harvard psychiatrist. And Dr. K helps a lot of creators with performance, burnout, and dealing with a lot of negative feedback online. It's a great hour of conversation with Dr. K, where Dr. K really breaks down what it means to be a creator today and the burnout that a lot of creators do experience and what to do when you get that burnout, because you will. And you can listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts, and I definitely suggest it. Listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts.